my dream was to be a grocery store oh. cashier at the Winn Dixie because they always had pretty nails and they had their hair up in a bouffant kind of in the 60s so they were punching all those buttons and they could punch those buttons and move those groceries down the belt and talk to my mother about how her week was going all at the same time and I thought now that is conversation. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers. At long last, welcome back to the show. This is episode one of season six. I can't believe I'm to season six already, but here we go. Last year at this time, we had a special anniversary episode, and this year, I didn't do that. But I want to note that it is three years since I started Historical Fiction Unpacked, and I'm super excited with how far it's come. Um, a lot of you know that I taught a workshop series on how to start a podcast at the Montrose Christian Writers Conference this past summer, and that was just, um, I just am so grateful grateful for that opportunity. It was a lot of fun, and it was a lot of work, and um, I can't believe that I'm in the position to share my knowledge with other writers about how to start a podcast. So anyway, that was fun. And um, there was a lot of other fun stuff that happened this summer. I hope that you joined my newsletter list so that you could keep up with me during my break. I do want to share just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started with the interview. And um, the biggest thing is that there may be some changes this season. Now, they haven't taken effect yet. But after three years of doing this podcast, I have actually joined a network and we may end up with some ads on the podcast. I know, I know this has never been a thing. I've always just asked you guys to support me in various ways at the end of the podcast. And I appreciate all the ways you've supported me. I'm so grateful. Um, but this, this kind of endeavor takes a lot of time and it also takes some money. So, that is why I'm looking into possibly monetizing in some way. So I kind of want to give you guys a heads up so you'll know if that does happen. You won't be blindsided by it. So with that out of the way, let's get to our guest. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Valerie Fraser Lussie, and she is the author of Letters from My Sister, which I also read that this summer, and I just loved that book. Um, you can hear me gushing about it during our our interview. But a few years ago, Valerie was on the show talking about Under the Bayou Moon. So it was great to have her on the show again. She is an award-winning author, Christie award-winning author, a best-selling author, and an award-winning magazine writer. She lives in and writes about the South, and I know that you are just going to love this conversation. So without any more rambling, let's get to my conversation with Valerie Fraser lussie Valerie, thank you for joining me on the show again today. Well, thank you. I'm excited to get to visit again. Me too. Um, your latest novel, Letters from My Sister, released on August 15th. Can you tell me about this book? This one is kind of special to me because it was inspired by my um, maternal grandmother and her sister. It's not a biography by any means. The story is fictional, but just their relationship to each other as the only girls in a, in a house full of boys. They had lots right. of brothers and um, what it must have been like for, for young women at the turn of the 20th century in the South. Um, and so um, I started with that. I started with their relationship 
to each other because they were very different. Um, My grandmother loved being outside. She loved talking to men about the farm and the cotton crops and all that stuff. And her sister was much more traditionally, I guess you would say feminine for that Mm -hmm. time. Um, And so um, they were not a lot alike and yet they seemed to enjoy each other's company. And um, what kind of got me interested in them as, as sisters were some postcards that they had exchanged uh, when they were separated at one time. And, you know, my grandmother, as I knew her, um, she had already had eight children. She had lost her husband when he was young. He was only 47 Mm -hmm. uh, to an accident. So she had had a difficult time. She had lost a child to diphtheria. Um, And so, you know, she'd been through a lot. She was very serious, um, not at all playful. Um, and so to read those postcards before all that happened to her when she was a young girl and she and her sister were talking about new dresses and hats and things like that, you know, yeah. it just made me think about, you know, what she must have been as been like as a young girl. And so I started from there and then I um, also wanted to delve into the relationship that they had with a black woman who kept just ran their house, ran their parents' house, did all the cooking, took care of everything, and also delivered most of my grandmother's children. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just, and my grandmother just revered her. Her name was Bama McCoy. And, and so I wanted to get at that relationship between a black family and a white family who are interdependent on each other and, and to show really, um, you know, how they're connected in ways that sort of override the social and racial barriers of the day. So it's part love story, part a little bit of a coming of age of the younger sister uh, who's 18 when the story opens and kind of trying to find her way. And then, um, you know, there's a little mystery uh, because one sister sees the other one do something that she would never, ever do. And so trying to reconcile what she saw with what she knows to be true about her sister is kind of what the, the mystery of the story hinges on. Right. Um, Callie, who the book, even though you're focused on both sisters, but it's really mostly Callie's story. Yeah, it's Callie's point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she has some memory loss that she's trying to recover to to try to understand this, this Correct. memory. Um, yeah, actually, I just I finished I read this book. I don't always read every book for the podcast. I wish I could, but I don't always have time. Um, but it's nice. The early ones in the season I generally have time to read because, um, you know, I had the summer. So I just, I absolutely loved this one. It was, yeah, it was my like second five-star book in a row, which is so unusual. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It was, I don't know. It was just so beautiful and immersive and the characters were so real to me and it brought me to tears, honestly, but I won't, I won't tell anyone why, because that would spoil the book, but. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And you described all the inspiration so well. And even though it focuses on Callie and Emmy, the it tells the story of, you mentioned the housekeeper, but mm-hmm. um, the housekeeper's granddaughter, Lily. Yes. How can you share a little bit about how her showing up affects not only their household, but also the whole town? Yeah, well, Lily kind of disrupts the the status quo, I guess you would say, just by being there. I I thought it was important that she doesn't do anything to spark outrage or, 
or attract attention to herself. She's just a beautiful, beautiful girl um, and was just born that way. And she has Mm -hmm. a lovely singing voice. And someone asked her to sing uh, during a picnic. She's in the backyard with her grandmother and the the workers who are her are serving this white family and their guests picnic. And some mm-hmm. of the workers hear her humming and say, Hey, would you sing for us? Well, her voice is so pretty. It attracts the attention of the guests and she gets unwanted attention from a local, just horrible man. Um, yeah. But it's just that it's really what they impose on her that makes her trouble for them, you know, because mm-hmm. Lily, uh, the way Callie sees it, she says these these white women are jealous of her. And so they have to make themselves believe there's something wrong with her or it'll just disrupt their view of things that, you know, she they're not superior to her. She's prettier than many of them. She's talented. She's, you know, a kind and, and good person. And they just can't wrap their brain around that. Right. So Callie comes to see that, you know, that these some of not all of them, but some of the white women in the community. Are, are just trying to believe the worst of her, even though she doesn't deserve it, just because they don't want to accept that, that Lily is, is, you know, just really this wonderful, intriguing, beautiful young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you talked about the relationship between the black family and the white family and how they were interdependent on one another. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I thought it was brilliant, the conversation that you um, had Callie over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it helped her realize Lily's humanity to hear her talking about how everyone is making these decisions for her, trying to keep her safe from this horrible man. Um, but nobody is asking her what she wants. Uh, so yeah. that, was, that was such a poignant moment in the book. And I'm just wondering, how, what gave you this insight to be able to show kind of back in that time, it's early, early 1900s mm-hmm. um, in the South. So what gave you the insight to see like that, that would be a good way for Callie to kind of glimpse what it's like to walk around in Lily's skin. It's kind of a, a thing that I've, that I've looked at in, in some other books, especially missing Isaac. Um, which was my first book. And I wanted where there is a prominent white man who has a lot of control over the community and he's a good man, but he still is deciding people's fate and not always aware that, that he's doing that. You know, it's just by virtue of his position in the community that he makes a lot of decisions for other people. And I was trying to get at the idea that even a benevolent dictator is still a dictator, you know? Yeah. And so I had played with that, some, mm-hmm. but then when I was working on this book, uh, my editor was really key to this, Kelsey Bowen, because the first manuscript had a, a lot of problems with it, the first draft of it, because I had too many instances where the good white people were running in to save the day. And and mm-hmm. we both talked and I was like, yeah, you're, you're right. That's not fair. That's not the way it would have been. And so in um, I actually, after I did a rewrite, which in, included that scene, um, so that I I gave some voice to these characters, uh, yeah. some of the black characters, and let them tell you what they were really thinking, which they couldn't say out loud in front mm-hmm. of white people back then. 
Um, and after I did a, a rewrite of it, I sent it to my, I, I'm originally from a little bitty tiny cotton growing community. Um, and mm. so um, uh, I sent it to the mayor of my hometown who is the minister. He's a minister. He's a real estate agent. He's from a black family there and his mom and my mom were friends when they were children. So, um, but he and I didn't know each other until we became adults. Yeah. But I sent it to him and said, you know, here's what I'm trying to avoid. I, I don't want it to be just the story of this white family. And I don't want mm-hmm. them to do the white saviorism thing. Right. Would you be willing? And he was very kind and read it and was happy with it and told me he thought I had been sensitive to all of the characters. And so mm-hmm. that meant a lot to me to, you know, because I realized through my editor that some things that I maybe had in my head, but weren't on the paper, mm-hmm. you know, were, were confusing the story. And so that was the scene that I added during that process. Sure. Right. Oh, we all, all writers. I think that all writers <laughs> have things in their head and they're like, Oh, I didn't mean for that to come across that way. Can I not tell you the middle stuff that I, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, so what other lessons or themes come out in this novel? I think, um, well, for, for Callie and Emmy, there's just this wonderful trust between mm-hmm. them that just can't be broken. No matter what Callie sees or what flashes of memory she gets that trouble her, yeah. she still will not let go of, I know my sister. Right. And in a way, that's what causes her great turmoil. If she could just accept this thing happened, maybe she could move away from it, but she can't. And so um, it's really that contrast of what she's remembering versus the person that she knows. And those two just don't go together. uh, That creates a lot of the tension in the book. So that trust between sisters, um, the love of this family, I really wanted to get the sort of camaraderie of the brothers and sisters you um, did. Oh, definitely. <laughs> it's much like my mother's family. They were always like that. You know, she mm. was, and my grandmother was also very close to, to all of her siblings. So just kind of watching that as an only child, I'm very fascinated by it, you know, because I don't know what it's like to have siblings. And so to have come from this big extended family, you know, where the brothers and sisters were so close, um, I've just always been fascinated with that and the kind of easy banner that they have. Um, but I also wanted one of the big things for me is is how these personal bonds between people, between, uh, you know, Hepsi Jordan, who keeps the Bullock's house and yeah. Terza and Callie's mother, Aurelia, and how they are joined uh, together. And that bond is fierce and it's going to overcome any social mores. Um, and so I, I said in some of my notes, I think it was in the author's note of the book that I, you know, sometimes people will criticize stuff like this and say, but it wasn't like that everywhere. No, it wasn't. But I'm saying it was like that in this household, you know? Right. right sure. And I know it to be possible um, is, is how these very personal bonds of kindness and compassion and, um, and gratitude really, because, uh, Callie and, um, Emmy's mother is extremely grateful to Hepsi and her mother because uh, her Terza brought all the Bullock children who were still living safely into the world. And so, 
you know, Aurelia's concern, that's that. She doesn't really care whether anybody, including her own mother, thinks it's strange that she's very close to these black women uh, because she feels like she owes them the lives of her children. So um, I, I see personal relationships overcome the more commonly accepted norms of a particular time and place. Right. Yeah, I love that. And there's also just, and this is kind of a common theme, I think, in a lot of Southern writing is just the conflict between the individual and the family. You know, um, I think it, um, Eudora Welty, I'm just a huge fan of, you know, she, Mm -hmm. there's a common theme that gets written about her a lot. Love and separateness is how they speak of it. But um, for me, it's how can you be an individual and still be part of a, a family that really has an idea of who you are and who you should be. Yeah. Um, maybe that doesn't mesh with who you feel like on the inside. So that's kind of what Callie is, is trying to feel her way through because it's easier for Emmy. Emmy is, is what everybody thinks she is. You know what you say? Right. She's a very traditional woman. She wants to get married. She wants to be a great host like her mother. She wants to have children and support her husband. So, and she's met the person she wants to do all that with. And for Callie, it's just not. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, And I love the way that Solomon is, is the one who, one of the ones who really sees her for who she is. Yeah. And he's, I think it's important that he's from the outside. Yes. He's not a Southerner. So he doesn't know the rules <laughs> and doesn't play by them. And, uh, and so he doesn't have any expectations of what she should be or what she's allowed to talk about. Right. He's allowed to talk to. Um, he, you know, it is, he just takes her for who she is. Right. Uh, and I think that's so refreshing to her. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's kind of what appeals to her. Yeah, so um, that's a good segue. Speaking of the South, <laughs> I understand that you've lived in the South. I have forever. Lived forever, <laughs> always. Okay. <laughs> forever and ever. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure you have a good grasp on the place and the people of your books, but how do you research? Um, how do you make sure that historically they're accurate? How do you do that research to make sure that you're not just, you know, recreating? something from today and just setting it. Well, it's amazing how easy it is to slip up on that stuff because I have, I have learned from my very talented copy editors at Reveal Books uh, who have saved me from myself many, many times um, things to check. Like there's a a date and time uh, calendar. You can pull up a calendar from any year and I keep one of those by me. If I'm setting a book in 1909, I'm looking at 1909 calendar, yeah. not because I necessarily want to get the specific day, but I want to make sure that if there was something big happening that year, or um, like if, if a certain date fell on a Sunday and, and I have characters doing something they wouldn't do on a Sunday, then I have to change the the date that it happened, you know, because in the South um, Sunday, even when I was a child, I mean, forget 1909, but in the sixties and seventies, you didn't do anything on Sunday, but go to church right. or visit family. Those are the only two things that were acceptable. 
And before you visited family, you needed to go to church. And if you were at their home when church rolled around, you needed to bring a bulletin back to your Sunday school teacher (laughs) and show her that you went to church because you were trying to get that Sunday school pen attendance, you know. Um, But people didn't do anything. Nothing was open. There was nowhere to go. Right. Um, you wouldn't think of going to a movie. Well, there, you know, even in the 60s, you, you know, you just didn't go anywhere. So things like that I have to take into account. Holidays I have to take into account. Um, I you look know. up things like foliage, like when I set the under the bayou moon, I looked up specific plants that would have been growing in a bayou environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to make sure. I have the cotton opening at the right time in, you know, books yeah. that, that have that. Um, so there's an awful lot, like the key to everything. I had this kid uh, doing the bike ride in the 40s and I, I had had him spray and bug spray. And then I thought, I wonder if they had bug spray in the 40s. And I looked it up and it was like only the military had <laughs> insect repellent uh, oh. right after the war. So I had to. You know, just little bitty details like that. I'm constantly looking things up. Just if it's something I'm not absolutely sure. If I use a song, I have to make sure it's in the public domain. You know, if I use the, the yeah. lyrics just to an old hymn or something. So it's it's pretty constant if, if I'm setting something way back yonder, as we say, that I, I really look up constantly. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. I had you on the show. We were just talking about this before we started recording, whether it was two years ago or one year ago, <laughs> talking talking about um, Under the Bayou Moon. And since then, that novel went on to win the um, Adult Fiction Award from the Alabama Library Association. Yes. So how did that come about? And what was that like? I don't know. I, would, don't I, know? I, I, I mean, I, it just, I didn't... Uh, I didn't send it in or anything like that. They just have a committee that reviews all these books by writers with Alabama connections. I can't remember if you have to live here or just have an Alabama connection, but they just, their awards committee just chose my book. And then they um, contacted me. And uh, at the time that I got the award, there was still enough COVID floating around that they weren't comfortable having an event. And yeah. so um, one of the uh, committee members came to, uh, she lives in Birmingham and um, we met for coffee and she gave me the award and then they oh. recorded our acceptance speeches. And I told her at the time, I said, this is a beautiful award, but I won't be able to keep it very long because my mother will claim it. And sure enough, I took it out to my parents <laughs> to show them because they're so proud of anything to do with my book. Uh-huh. They're, they're 86. So I took it out there. Mother said, Oh, it's beautiful. Can I have it? And I uh-huh. said, sure. <laughs> so then I, I wrote to this friend I had made on the committee. I said, I told you that I would not get to hold on to this award very long. And sure enough, it's in my mother's dining room as we speak. Oh, my uh, but yeah, she claimed it, but that was really exciting. And it meant a lot to me because it was coming from librarians um, yes. and the libraries have always been so important to me and such a, you know, such a wonderful influence in terms of books being made available to me. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the fact that it came from them just was amazing. Yeah. I just feel like librarians have um, really excellent taste. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I do too. It's the exposure to so many books. Yeah. Probably. 
Yeah. So I, I also noticed last year that you made the Christianity.com's list of 50 Christian authors you should know. And I looked at that list because I wondered if I knew many of the authors on it. And I was so excited that one of them had been on my show. So <laughs> that was exciting to see. It, it's uh, amazing when stuff like that happens because it's always a surprise. I, I did a signing in um, Huntsville, Alabama, and I w- was talking to some folks up there and I said, you know, my reaction when people that I don't know come up to me and tell me they love one of my books is is still really, you know, I just can't <laughs> believe that anybody besides my family has read yeah. them. And so I'm still surprised by that. So it's it's wonderful and very gratifying and humbling and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you make a list like that. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 thrilling. But I, I'm still surprised, you know, and I'm like, are we, are you my cousin? You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, that's cool. So what are you working on next? Can you tell us about that? Oh my goodness gracious. I am um, in the throes of wrestling a, a story um, because it, it just, they tend to present themselves in stages, you know, you'll see, or I do anyway, I'm not one of those writers who has everything all mapped out and every character nailed down in my ABC one, two, three outline. I can't write that way. I wish that I could because yeah. it would make things go so much more smoothly. Yes. But I, I tend, understand. Oh, I tend to, I start with a, a time and place and sort of circumstance and, uh, and then it just kind of, I go, I start writing and then I'll see a little bit more and I'll see a little bit more. And I'm not seeing this one fast enough to suit me, but it's it's going to be set on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which is an, mm. an area that I just love. And um, because it has a mood to it that, you know, there are lots of gorgeous beaches in the South. Um, yeah. Mississippi is different because they have... Uh, barrier islands that sort of blocked away. So the, the water's flat and it almost looks more like river water in color than which is at least on the mainland. Once you get out to some of their islands, then you're on the open Gulf and it looks, you know, like the other Gulf waters, but it's, there's something about it being flat and it's always visible. Um, as you drive through all these towns, Beach Boulevard runs right along the water and there are all these old homes. There's still some of them. Many of them were lost to Katrina, but mm-hmm. um, there's still there's still some, and just beautiful live oak trees that give a whole different mood to a coastline than palm trees, you know. Right. Um, and so I wanted to try to capture that. So I have um, a young woman who has suffered a great loss, and uh, she's been living up north she's been in new york and her grandmother who is not a typical grandmother her name is punk and she <laughs> waits uh edie is the main character to to come down and let those as she says let these old gulf waters heal you and mm-hmm. um it, things begin there but they go hopefully in all kinds of interesting directions for edie as she spends some time with a, a dear friend of her mother's and um it's just the interaction of multi-generational women um, that I'm starting with. 
Um, and I have to keep reminding myself that the pace is not going to be great right now um, mm-hmm. because I tend to start slow and then pick up speed and then I have to go back and edit so right. that the book moves a lot faster. So um, I'm trying to edit myself too much just to tell you the truth. But, uh, but I really want to capture this part of Mississippi because it's so special and different. Neat. Yeah, that sounds cool. I've never been to the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, so. Some great little towns like Ocean Springs and um, Bay St. Louis kind of are the bookends uh, with Biloxi and Gulfport. Mm-hmm. And then past Christiane and Long Beach. But um, what's unique about it to me is that a lot of beach towns, there's the touristy areas and then there's where the locals go. And there's really not that division in Mississippi because the towns, downtown, you know, Biloxi is right there on the water, you know, mm. a few blocks, just a couple of blocks off the, the water, you're in downtown Biloxi. So there's not that big divide between where the tourists are and where the locals are. And it just gives it kind of a different flavor, I think. Right. Well, that's cool. Um, so this is my last question for you. It's kind of a fun question. If you could choose to live in any time in history other than right now, in what time period would you choose to live? Oh, my. Well, the romantic me would go back to the horse and buggy days. I would go back to Callie and um, Emmy's time. But deep down, I know how hot it was in Alabama and all those dresses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think I might do the I might do the 40s. I might do that mm. era. Because my parents have made it sound, you know, so interesting. Of course, they were kids, but they had older siblings. And they were both born in 37. Okay. So they were kids during the war. Yeah. Wow. But it just sounded like such an, such an interesting time. But I think, I don't know. I always, to me, the past is more interesting than the present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just is. I, I mean, even my own past, I think the 60s and 70s were more interesting than right now. So I don't know why I feel that way. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I mean, because we obviously we would love history or yeah. we wouldn't be so interested in historical fiction. I think what I miss is community. And, yeah. and there are there's still places, you know, in, in towns and neighborhoods where you have a great sense of community even in a big Mm -hmm. city like Birmingham there are good communities but there was something about that time when at least where I grew up everybody went to church the church was the center of the of the town really right right you know and and there was just such a togetherness or something I don't know I it, it doesn't seem that way now as much as it as it did back then, you know, um, Mm -hmm. what I'm getting at, I just, there's, there's something missing to me in the modern world. And I don't know exactly what it is, but, um, I always, in all my books, I write about community and I think that's just kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think there, I think you're right because we have so many isolating facets of technology that, it, in some ways, it connects us to people that we would never be connected with. Um, but it also isolates us from people who are right around us. So it's there true. is there is something lacking um, in in our community, our 
you know, face to face people we can feel and touch and talk to and see, <laughs> actually see, not through a screen. Um, yeah, there's something lacking in that today. It's it's very true. And I um I don't know. The grocery store has never been the same for me once they did the digital stuff and mm. I miss the days with the big push button cash registers. That was my dream was to be a grocery store oh. cashier at the Winn Dixie because they always had pretty nails. And they had their hair up in a bouffant kind of in the 60s. So they were punching all those buttons. And they could punch those buttons and move those groceries down the belt and talk to my mother about how her week was going all at the same time. And I thought, now that is conversation. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. And I remember my mother knowing her cashiers at the grocery store, you know. Mm -hmm. They knew about each other's families and kids. And they talked to each other while they you know, check out. Right. The and, uh, and it was the same at the bank. It was the same at the drugstore, you know? Um, and it's just not quite that way. It's that you can make it that way if you make right. it, but it's, it's not as easy. It doesn't seem like. No, it doesn't. I mean, I do, I live in a fairly small town and we have a, someone I know who works at the Aldi and, you know, I do talk to her when she checks me out, but, um, it's much, you know, there are a lot of times that I pick up my order at Sam's and they just yeah. hand it out to me. I mean, I talk, you know, friendly with the person, but you're not going to see the same person every time or anything like right. that. So It's true. Uh, things are just kind of kind of different now, but I, I like that. I think maybe I'm more nostalgic for a, a sort of a way of life, a more communal way of life than a particular time. Yes. You know? Um. I, I, I do think there's some some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Valerie, this has been a wonderful conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Probably on Facebook because I'm old, so I don't do Instagram and all that <laughs> other stuff all that well. <laughs> so they can easily find me on Facebook. I think I'm Valerie.lessy on Facebook and okay. they can uh, find my books wherever books are sold, especially uh, at Baker Bookhouse or Baker Publishing Group mm-hmm. um, online. Um, I do have a website, which is just very imaginative, ValerieFraserLessie.com. Um, but yeah, Facebook is probably where I post the most information about my books and what I'm doing. And also some fun, just some fun stuff that my, you know, Facebook friends like. And I tried mm-hmm. to have an author page, but it was just, you know, I didn't have the brain power to maintain two Facebook pages. And a lot of readers were finding me on my personal page anyway. So I just heard everybody over that way now. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with everything. That's for sure. It's, yes. We're pulled in too many different directions. <laughs> well, it was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. and It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, my friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Valerie. I really did. I enjoyed talking to her and I really enjoyed her book too. So um, as you know, if you listen to this podcast, you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. And there are a few ways that you can help me out. 
Um, you can subscribe to the show or follow it on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. And if you can go the extra step and rate and review it, that really helps out the show. It helps people find the show and just gets the word out there about the show. Um, also, you can join our Facebook group and you can follow our Instagram and you can find my Patreon at patreon.com slash Treat. All of these links are on the sh- in the show notes, as well as links to Valerie's um, website and her Facebook page, and also her books. So make sure you check out those show notes. And now, as always, my friends, I want to leave you with a quote. I found this quote as I was thinking about the benevolent dictatorship that Valerie mentioned, and this is what C.S. Lewis thinks about that. He said, Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for their own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They be they may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time, likelier to make a hell of earth. So my friends, let's not be dictators, benevolent or otherwise, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.